Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Ding. Happy Thursday morning. Beautiful here in in North Texas, uh, especially after the awful weather we had around here the last couple weeks. I'm Dave DeFore. My man in Oklahoma City, Andrew Schlecht, is on the show. We got Jared Weiss talking Celtics. We also got Mike Vorkanoff popping in to talk a little Knicks. Uh, but I got to start with Boston. Jared, look, there. I, last night I texted you. I said, we got to get you on the ding. Is Brad Stevens on the hot seat? Is that where, are we there finally, officially, finally? It depends. Are we going based on my Twitter mentions or are we going based on reality? Because you, you could get two different answers there. Um, I mean, Danny Ainge went on the radio this morning and said, everyone, please stop being mean to Brad Stevens. This is my fault. I'm the worst. It's it's incredible. You, you see how much job security he has where he's like, guys, I'm I'm screwing the pooch here. I'm the worst GM ever. Everything is my fault. Don't worry about Brad. And at the end of the day, whatever, whatever you could think of what is going on with Brad Stevens and whether he should be the coach of this team. The guy has like five years left on his contract at somewhere between seven to ten million dollars a year, I believe. So they're not going to they're not going to be cutting him anytime soon. Um, And they should. They obviously shouldn't. It's like it's it's very apparent that what there's a lot of shortcomings that we'll get into with uh, this team and stuff that Stevens has just clearly like not been succeeding with. But it's very clear that this team sucks because Danny Ainge let this team be sucky when they got into the start of the season. So Jared, this is, this is a roster construction issue, right? This isn't, this isn't a Brad Stevens issue. Like Brad Stevens has proven that he's a good coach in the past. This is a, not on offense though. They're too, not on offense. So uh, it's not this bad though. Aren't they the worst? I think they're the worst fourth quarter offense in the league. I mean, that's, that's a problem. Easy now. Cleveland, I think, is still technically worse than that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, they're so it's so bad. It's so bad. And it, it no, it's there is blame all around. Nobody, there is nobody you can say this is not their fault. I think Brad Stevens deserves the least amount of the blame. And that's not because uh it's not a Boston Bee reporter protecting Brad Stevens, as as I'll be accused of by 50 people after they listen to this podcast, mm-hmm. as it happens every day. It's that you look at the lineups that Stevens has had to run out there this whole year and it's like, how could they be successful? They're playing Daniel Tice and Tristan Thompson together as what is basically their best lineup as Dave wanted to point out before we started recording. It's their best lineup by net, net rating so far this year. Right. And mm-hmm. it's obviously not their best lineup as far as like Absolutely how to compose a, a winning basketball lineup. Um, and, and you know, that lineup has had some success when teams are blitzing Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown and they have to kick it out and then they're able to play some high low stuff. They found some success there. And that's why I think the net rating is probably a little bit inflated for that team. But like that, that lineup, which is their most, I guess, competent basketball lineup with the guys that they have healthy. It's like it can't function as an offense because, I mean, Daniel Tice, he he's pretty good at pick and pops shooting, pick and pop shooting from the top of the key. But he doesn't shoot well anywhere else on the court right now. And so in that lineup, Daniel Tice has to space out to the corner and it makes him kind of like a really non-useful spot up shooter. And they can do the same thing with Shemi Ojale and Shemi Ojale has been pretty up and down this year. They're starting to put Aaron Neesmith in that role and closing with Aaron Neesmith. I think that shows a lot of promise. 
And, you know, he's really early in his career. He's making a lot of mistakes. He's still airballing half of his corner threes, but he's he's starting to get his feet under him pretty quickly here. So there's something to look towards there. But you look at that Atlanta game last night, and this is a team that is just completely devoid of any sort of killer instinct. And it's like it's pathetic. And it's. It, it Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown don't come out and everything is falling for them. The team just falls flat on its face completely. And that's yeah. what that's the thing where everyone keeps saying, how can Marcus Smart be your most important player? That's why he's the most important player on the team It's because, yes, like we know all the stuff he does on the court. Well, I mean, and he's a, a completely overlooked playmaker and passer. I mean, he, he really is a gifted point guard as a passer. Uh, and we know what he does defensively, but it's that it's that energy level. Marcus Smart plays the same way if he's 0 of 7 or 7 of 7. You're going to get the same effort. He's going to shoot the same number of times, too, which is a good and bad thing. But but you know that you're going to get a consistent effort, and these guys feed off of that so much. But it is incredible to me that they are unable to capture any of that without Marcus Smart on the court. And you have to start looking at the coaching staff there because that is part of the job of the coaching staff. Yeah, you know, I just asked Stevens last night about whether he feels, you know, when you're a coach, you're the one establishing the culture and delivering the top down message. But the players are really working on a daily basis more within their positional groups and with their specific assistant coaches that they're assigned to. So those you have to have these kind of accountability cycles within an organization where there's accountability between the players and accountability from the assistant coaches to the players and that you're creating that condition of competition and awareness and preparedness all the way top down. It can't just be all on Stevens. And he said that he doesn't think that's an issue and that it's really more about that. They just they're coming out there. They have their game plan and they're just they're not executing it with a level of desperation that they've had in the past. That's really defined the Celtics team. And a huge thing is that the Celtics team hasn't really had that creative of an offense since they've really transitioned towards Tatum and Brown running the offense over the last year and a half. But they were really good because they were so great with their perimeter ball pressure that they put teams on their heels. They got ton- they forced tons of turnovers and got out in the transition a ton. And right now that's barely happening. And I think that's probably the place where they're missing smart the most is that they just because they're not forcing turn- turnovers and they just don't have that ball pressure that forces a lot of misses as well. They're not getting out in transition and getting the easy offense that they were able to get, you know, 15 times a game. So that's how they end up falling into these isolation situations over and over and over again. Yeah, and they're not creating good looks, and and then when they do, who who's sticking them? Semi Nobody. Semi Ojale is just not getting it done, and, and you know this was one of the issues that we saw coming into the year when they lost Gordon Hayward, a guy who has been uh, was underrated for for the Celtics the last few years because people only think about the injuries, but when he was healthy, he did so much for them as as that third playmaker on the court at times, as a guy that you could trust running bench units. Like I mean, he just paired so well with so many people. And it's a gap that I don't think that they can fill during the season. So, you know, Danny Ainge this morning saying we we probably aren't using our TPE until the summer. He's right. Like the guys that they could go after are potentially going to be available this summer. If you want to try to get Bradley Beal, you're not getting him this year. I don't unless you are. I mean, is Jalen Brown going to be in this trade? Is Jason Tatum going to be in this trade? If you're not getting rid of one of those guys, I think you're this is your team and, and you can hope for 
a Drummond or someone like that, but you're not getting a real needle mover in the middle of this year. Don't don't bring up Andre Drummond. You're gonna set off. The, <laughs> I brought him up as a I can, I can hear mover. screams outside my windows right now when you brought up Andre Drummond because um, there's only two. There's two camps on Andre Drummond. Either he's gonna save the franchise or he's gonna ruin the franchise. It's somewhere one of those. But two it all. Games. But you know, I want to go back to the Pelicans game where they blew that lead because you know that to me was indicative of one of their problems. They like Rob Williams was needed in that game before he got in. I mean, he they needed him when. The Pelicans athleticism started abusing Tristan Thompson and, and Daniel Tice. And then you saw in overtime, Rob Williams was involved in every single winning play that the Celtics made in that last five minutes. And I understand like, yeah, he is a, a, a mistake prone player. He's young. He's still figuring out like who he is as a player. But you can see him make these passes, the defensive plays. I mean, blocking threes and running the court and getting an alley-oop on the other end. I mean, those energy plays high-level athleticism plays. He is a vertical spacer. He adds more dynamism to what they're doing. And I almost think it's worth them losing games with Rob Williams for what it means down the line Then, even if they turn this around and win 10 straight with what they're currently doing. This is not going to work in the playoffs. So you're absolutely right. And what you're touching on is an important one of the important parts of the Stevens doctrine that I'm making up right now, which is that Brad Stevens in the past has very much slow rolled young players increase their role through the course of a season because he he wants to go to guys that he trusts are not going to be mistake prone on defense. Guys that even if they're more limited in their capability, they're going to know how to swing the ball when they and it gets their way on offense without turning it over. They're going to know how to make the defensive rotations without completely blowing the weak side coverage, that stuff. And Rob Williams screws that stuff up all the time. It's gotten a lot better, but it's still pretty bad. And that New Orleans game where a lot of people saw him dominate, I think that was literally the best game of his entire career so far. You know, at least he's had games where he had like 20 points and a bunch of value oops. But that game featured the most good defensive plays and the least amount of defensive breakdowns that he's had in his career. So, you know, that might inflate what people people where people think he is in his career. But you're right, though, in that Stevens, I think he's seeing with now that he's playing Neesmith a little bit more and he's playing Williams a little bit more that the team, if they're going to grow and get anywhere, he needs to be willing to just stop giving these veterans like Jeff Teague, who, I mean, Jeff Teague didn't play for like four, three games straight, basically. So he's starting to get there. They need to stop playing media veterans that are playing at a mediocre level and start letting these younger guys make mistakes so that they can continue to grow, but also like give them, give them that extra level of potency that can actually get them over the top and like, just have more, like have a wider range of outcomes possible for their team. Cause right now it's like the floor of this team is a little bit higher when you play those mediocre veteran role players, but like the ceiling is just too low of what those guys can bring to the table. And they need to, they need to cover that gap between their all stars that they have at the top of the roster. And then that whole space that Hayward was kind of filling the bridge, the gap in that roster yeah. down to the Shemi Ojale's. So is this just a matter of getting healthy? Is this just Marcus Smart coming back healthy? Or is this um, more of a, this team needs a fix. They need a buyout guy. They need a uh, a trade to happen. What's your opinion? Um, I mean, if they're going to win this year, I think they need a pretty substantial trade. Because, um, I mean, you know, Marcus Smart coming back and 
eventually being healthy because don't forget like he's dealing with a grade one calf tear it's not like he's dealing with a a sprained pinky finger it's gonna take a while for him to be healthy and be able to do what he does and to be able to trust his body because you know when you're when your calf just randomly pops at you know at a completely random moment like it did for him takes you a while to be physically comfortable and confident to be willing to dive on the floor and jump like crazy a thousand times a game like he does so i think it's going to be a long road until smart's really at the top of his game and then, of course, if Kemba Walker continues to shoot like 25% from three for the rest of the year, they're going nowhere. Like they yeah. need Kemba Walker to be Kemba Walker again. So, you know, if those guys get back to playing at their best by the time they're in the playoffs, this team will be a lot better. But it's just not it doesn't it's still not going to be enough to overcome these top dogs in the East. And so they need to they need to replace Hayward. They need to get another good wing that is a two-way wing that can knock down shots or can really be lethal attacking off the dribble. And so, you know, there's John Collins, there's Aaron Gordon, there's a few guys that I think can fill that role pretty competently. You know, there's Harrison Barnes, who I don't think is someone they should be trading for because it's just like he's already at the peak of his career and they should get somebody that's more aligned on their timeline. But, you know, there are some of those guys that are available that it could certainly get them just close enough to competitive level that they're there. But like Ainge said this morning, like they have this opportunity with that twenty and a half million dollar trade exception to get a cornerstone piece, which means they would have to throw in literally every single asset that they have. They'd have to trade like a thousand draft picks and all their young talent to get there. But it is something that they can do. And they're willing to wait till the offseason and basically punt on this year to be able to do that because they think and I think it's a reasonable thing to think that they could be literally the best team in the NBA for or at least be in contention to be the best team in the NBA for a half decade if they manage to pull that off. Yeah, I mean, you have a guy in Tatum that looks like a number one. You have a guy in Jalen Brown that might also be a number one. Um, that's a great place to be, especially given their age. But, you know, it, it's the for us, we have to start thinking about the constraints of the CBA and the fact that this league really is year by year. I mean, if, if Jason Tatum comes back after this, you know, during the summer and is like, hey, I want out of Boston. Now, all of a sudden, you've got a whole different thing. So I understand like the impetus to uh, to try to improve now. And I completely understand the franchise looking long term. It's just you're in a tough spot because the expectations were there for them this year. And I would even say unrightfully so because of what they lost in, in Gordon Hayward. But the expectations were there, and that's how public pressure starts with stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is they're a victim of their own success in that Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum were kind of at the core of this team that made the conference finals three times in four years. And, of course, the year they didn't make it was their most talented roster that year. So they're, it's kind of just like the process Sixers, where they've been so successful and so good so early that after – this pe- the early development period where most pl- where most teams aren't even really competitive yet they've been competitive there is already this sense of they're failing and they're missing their their one opportunity to win because they haven't won yet and because they keep coming up short but i i, th- I think that it's pretty clear if you watch this team it's like while Tatum and Brown were certainly deserving of being all-stars it seems ridiculous that there's two all-stars on a team with a losing record they both have been playing at pretty much an all-star level but as good as that they as good as they've been so far this year it's pretty clear that they still haven't been good enough to keep this team over the top and a little bit of that is on them but it's it's hard for them to really do much more than they're currently doing in the NBA. You need more than just two really good players. 
Like we we have just seen that too much. You need more than three really good players. Even I mean the Nets they they're going to need their role players to play well. Every single team needs it. The Lakers needed it last year with two of the top four players in the league. And so, you know, you need more than just Tatum and Brown. And, and right now they just don't have it right now. They are basically the D and Tony Rockets when they had Harden at CP three, but they're at a, a little bit lower level than those two guys. And they don't have the snipers and the hardworking defensive players surrounding them. That's the difference is that the supporting cast of that team that had a lot of guys that could really thrive in their roles. And right now, Boston just doesn't have anyone performing at that level. Got a call about George Hill. Call about George Hill. Call about P.J. Tucker. Yeah. I mean, they could get those guys, but they they have to they have to use a bunch of you know, like half of the TP that they have on someone that's only worth it for a couple months and isn't going to move the needle. So that's where it's like uh, people want to see them make that kind of move. But that the opportunity cost of getting a player like that, it just doesn't do enough for you this mm-hmm. year to make it worth that opportunity cost. Joining the show to talk about the Knicks and, I mean, guys, Andre Drummond trade rumors. They're one of like 15 teams that might be trading for Andre Drummond. Athletic New York Knicks beat writer, writer, reporter, which do you prefer? It's Mike Vorkanoff. I have to do both. So either one. It depends how many texts I send that day. Okay, so let's start with with the Drummond thing. I mean, there's a rumor out there that they're, they're pushing to try to get Andre Drummond. Does, is this a sign that the Knicks are going to be buyers at the trade deadline? Oh, look, I, I don't want to talk about the veracity of, of that rumor, but I would say that sure. to me the sign that the Knicks were uh, buyers, are buyers at the deadline is that they trade for Derrick Rose like two weeks ago. Um, that to me is like, okay. I just okay. thought that was a Tibbs thing, though. It, it was a Tibbs thing. Interestingly, Austin Rivers had his conf- his Zoom call yesterday and was like, yeah, I heard about Derrick Rose trade before the season even started. So I wasn't that surprised, which kind of is like eyes emoji type of situation. Um, so I, I guess that really is like a Tibbs thing. Like they're just like, all right, hire Tibbs, put band back together, find Luau Dang, give him a contract as the next piece. Um, right. So well, they yeah, got Taj. They got Taj. They, they got Rose. I don't know. Like on the right now. So like almost like why not bring him back? Like let's do it. That's why Tibbs took the job, obviously. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, actually. Yeah, Mike, who who are they trading? Like, who's the cap fodder in these in these scenarios? Maybe it's not Andre Drummond. Maybe it's somebody else that makes a a good amount of money. Obviously, they have the cap space available, but like, who's who's the additional guys that are thrown in? You know, the the hard part is so they have the seventeen mil, right? So they can just take on a big contract if they need to, and I believe that would open up a trade exception for whichever team then does the deal with them. Um, you know, they would, they'd be getting players that you need, that they need for their rotation. They need guards, they need shooters, they need scorers. Um, to me, the hard thing right now to discern is, I, last I looked, I think yesterday, like 27 teams were within three spots of a playoff seed right now with the play-in tournament. Uh, so like, who's selling is my question. Um, and you're not selling with the Thunder unless, you know, Presti gets like two first round picks back in return no matter what right. deal he does right. um the pistons already traded rose i don't know who else they have to deal and uh the timberwolves i don't even though they're really bad right now i don't really look at them as sellers because like <laughs> not the way that they're acting you know hiring chris finch in the dead of night so i don't really know who's trading what for who um it to me it seems like everyone wants to improve so that that makes for a weird trade market Julius Randle was a guy that that I really targeted as, as a, a piece that the Knicks might be able to get something for when he started the season hot. 
But when he's had a run like this, making an all-star team, you pretty much just can't trade it. Like, that's just an awful PR move, right? Yeah, I mean, that that would be really hard. You know, that would be probably along the lines of, like, the Isaiah Thomas deal that the Celtics made a few years ago, and that still, still seems to, and Jared, you can probably tell me, like, still have some reverberations for the franchise. Um I, you can trade them, obviously, like if they get a huge, significant upgrade, I think the fans will be OK with it. But it really is weird, you know, in the course of like three months, he went from a guy that Knicks fans hate. And really, you you question what his future was with the franchise to now an all star. Right. Like he's legitimately been good this year, deserves that all star nod. Um and I think also he's just easier to deal in the in the offseason considering his contract status. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to make an in-season trade that would really shake up your roster the way that tr- trading Julius Randle would, even if you did get someone, you know, arguably better back. Is it safe to say that if they were to make a deal, they're not looking to trade for parts? They're looking to upgrade to a more substantial cornerstone piece? I think that the deal, they want to get one of those guys eventually in return. Um you know, I don't know what that trade would look like. They have so many, they have so many picks uh, that it would be, uh, you know, that it would be what they go for eventually. But, you know, I think the timeline for trading for a star is really difficult. Um, I don't know who the next guy to hit the market is. What about RJ Barrett? Uh, has his, I don't know, he's kind of come around this year a little bit more as a playmaker. I, I think the scoring clearly has has been pretty good. Do they feel differently, you think, about RJ going forward? Maybe they feel better now after seeing him, you know, the first half of the season than they might have coming into the year? You know, I think they I think you have to feel better about him this year because he has played better. I like the improvements that he's made. You know, his shot is still obviously like it's just so inconsistent. There's a lot of volatility there. Um, but you know, the, the number is a whole from what he did last year. I, I think, though, really on this roster, considering um, Leon Rose is in charge now, different coach, different front office, even though Scott Perry is the holdover as the GM, I, I don't think there's much, you know, like, I don't think anyone is safe, basically. Like, I, if they traded anyone, I, don't, I wouldn't be surprised, um, you know, as long as the trade itself made sense. Yeah, what, what does this mean for, for Obi Toppin? I mean, he they select him eighth in the draft, right? And they're trying to get another big. Like, what is what does this mean for him? Because I mean, he's already twenty two. I mean, he's he's a much older rookie, thought to be able to come in and contribute right away. Uh, what does this mean for him? Well, right now it means he's watching a lot. Um, he, you know, they traded the guy who is the backup to the best player on the team for a coach who loves to ride his best player. So there's not really a lot of time for him. He's not a five. They have, you know, Tom Thibodeau has not been willing to play him as a five, or at least in a Randall top and front court. I think that kind of really hurts the defense a lot. And Tom Thibodeau is not willing to sacrifice defense right now. Um, so right now it's kind of murky. Like he still is the future ostensibly. He's the number eight overall pick, right? Like they liked him. They, that was a guy that they eyed throughout the entire draft process. But, um, the question of how to get him on the court is probably a little more confusing. And, uh, when you're trying to figure out what to do with Julius Randle, I, I don't know how much that weighs in because, um, you know, Obi Toppin wasn't like this surefire all-star when you drafted him, you know, he's number eight pick and a what people said was like a meh kind of draft. Number eight pick in a good draft is maybe you're hoping he turns out to be a starter. So, you know, that, I think that's all part of the calculus for them going forward. Okay, uh, as, as we wrap up, gun to your head. We're at the almost at the all-star break. They're currently 10th in the East. They're 15 and 17 as we're recording. Are they going to make the playoffs? And we'll call the play-in the playoffs just for these purposes. Are they going to do this? Uh, yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, like, I think they're better than the Pistons and the Cavs. I think they're better than uh, the Magic who keep having all these injury issues. Um, you know, 
I guess maybe better than the Wizards. I, I would I would think if they do, they're the 10 seed. Like that's the way I've kind of looked at it. I think they'll make one more move on the margins there to improve a little bit. Um, but really, they need to get the offense better. Like I, I don't know how much longer they can keep winning games with defense. I, I don't know how tenable that is in the NBA nowadays to just be a non-offense team. Yeah, well, Mike Vorkanoff, thanks very much for popping on to the show. And uh, everybody go check him out over at The Athletic. As usual, a bunch of games <laughs> happened last night. Uh, we'll do our best to kind of wrap our heads around them. Uh, the Jazz do not stop. They lost to the Clippers the other day. They beat the Lakers. Of course, there's no AD, no Dennis Schroeder. Uh, Tony Jones over at The Athletic has a great game story on this, but it's more of a bigger picture look as well. Like this Jazz team, I, I think that that was a great exclamation point on their first half, even without AD and without Dennis Schroeder. They they wa- uh, they really did whoop the Lakers, and they should have because the Lakers yeah. were shorthanded. You guys feel any differently about the Jazz after watching that game? Uh, I don't. I think they've been rolling. They're a very, very good team. Uh, they are still a team that needs to prove it in the playoffs to a degree. Uh, but right now, I, I think it's safe to say the Jazz are performing at the top of the NBA right now. I do feel differently because Rudy Gobert entered my MVP ladder and after watching that game. And you know why? It's because of screen assists. Because that guy in this game. Oh my God. The role gravity <laughs> that he had was destroying the Lakers. The Lakers defense with LeBron James being the low guy that's supposed to pick him up. It just destroyed the Lakers defense. And they were getting wide open threes off of it over and over and over again. So I want Rudy Gobert to be the first guy to win MVP off of screen assists. Uh, uh, Charlotte and Phoenix, man, two really, really fun teams. Uh, I'll say Charlotte is a surprise, and they won this game. Um, I, but the only thing I want to talk about, first of all, LaMelo Ball is must-watch must, must watch TV. Even if you're only watching his highlights, I mean, he absolutely cooked DeAndre Ayton from the top of the key in a way that I don't know that I've seen anybody do to DeAndre Ayton. He moves pretty well. And I love that when LaMelo gets a guy – in isolation, he starts that size up and it looks like, you know, the the guy from the gym that's like uh, in the full Jordan kit and he's out there just dribbling the ball extra hard. You know, that that meme, that's what he looks like. Only he's actually good. And I mean, he absolutely cooked him. Uh, they won this game. One point of contention in this game late. Devin Booker hits a three, leans into Gordon Hayward with his elbow and they reviewed that play and still called it a Freaking foul on Gordon Hayward. We've got to get rid of that call, guys. Yeah, I don't love that call either. But it's, it has to go it, away. It has to go away. But also, I don't blame Devin Booker for knowing that it's going to work. Of course not. You can't. Don't hate the player. Hate the game. Yep. I do want to shout out. I forget which ref it was, but in the Dallas Boston game earlier this week, Jalen Brunson did that in crunch time, I think, on Kemba Walker. And because Walker didn't leave his feet, they actually called it an offensive foul. And I I looked at that play. I'm like, that is correct by the letter of the law. But I can't believe I'm seeing this in real life right now. But defenders are allowed to leave their feet. And and that's the thing. Defenders are also entitled to space. So solve that one. Let's let's get. Let's get off that, though, because I'll, I'll be vert- there all day. Vertical- the principle of verticality exists it's everywhere gone. on the floor, not just at the rim. Well, it doesn't anymore. Uh, Golden State, they beat they beat the Pacers. Draymond Green had a, a perfect Draymond Green line. 12 points, 9 rebounds, 11 assists, 3 steals, and a block. Dr- Draymond's back. He's back. Yeah. He looks great. He does. He looks great. And it's good to see the Warriors win a game while not shooting well from three. 
because uh, it seemed like that's how they were going to win games this year is that they were just going to outshoot teams uh, with Steph Curry just being a monster. He was one of 11, and they still were able to pull out a win against the Pacers. So uh, good on the Warriors for uh, kind of grinding this game out. Yeah, super important for them to to find ways to win with their role players somehow. I, I don't know how they did it, but they pulled it off. Uh, look, speaking of back, guys, the Bulls are back. If this playoff started today, they're in the playoffs. Zach Levine is an all-star. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I started the campaign uh, last week. We got to get Zach Levine some help. I'm really pushing for the Bulls to make a trade. Now, look, they beat the Timberwolves, so you know we can say ho hum. This one went to overtime. Zach Levine was awesome. He actually had a buzzer beater three attempt, and I cannot believe it didn't fall. Like that's right. where we're at with Zach Levine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So the Bulls are officially back. The lower the clock, the better Zach Levine shoots. Like the ball goes in by the vibration of the horn going off whenever <laughs> Zach Levine shoots it. And I think what's exciting about Levine is that he just the I think the chucker aspect of his game has gone. And maybe that's because he keeps hitting all these he check threes over and over again. And also I think it's because Kobe White has been just so good operating with the ball in his hands that it doesn't look as lopsided of an offense anymore with Levine. So credit to Kobe White. He's stepping up very quickly. It's it's hard to imagine he's only in his second season. And had a great game in this one, which, of course, makes everything easier for Zach Levine. Uh, and, and the Oklahoma City Thunder, Andrew, what am I going to say? You know what I'm going to say. Too good to tank, man. Too good to tank. And part of the reason, like the major reason why they're too good to tank, I know a lot of the talk is going to be about Lou Dort hitting uh, the game winning three and then, you know, laying on the ground. Like, I, I love that. Like, we that actually looks like live trying to draw a foul, um, but with no one there. So you can actually see how ridiculous it is. Uh, it was a great shot for Dort. He's obviously having a great season. But Shea Gilgis Alexander is a star. And he had yeah. 42 points in this game. I mean, he is actually controlling and dictating the pace in these games. Shea Gilgis-Alexander might be the most underrated young player in the league. He's had an unbelievable season. He had 42 points on 20 shots. He averages the most drives per game in the league uh, and really is controlling the offense at a really high level. He scored, he had 42 and was just cooking, had whatever he wanted, and was still trying to make the correct pass at the end of the game, which really says something for him because he doesn't have the best teammates in the world. It's not like he's surrounded by you know the 2018 Warriors. Like That's not who this team is, but he's still trying to make the right pass, make his teammates better, and he trusted Lou Dort there at the end of the game. I guess it was really Al Horford, but they trusted him to make the shot and threw it to him in the corner, uh, it's that's just kind of the spirit of this Thunder team this year was kind of all wrapped up in that last moment. And we we talked briefly about the Atlanta Boston game from last night. Atlanta, I mean, the this final score doesn't indicate how big of a, a whooping this was. It was one twenty seven, one twelve Atlanta. Uh, I, I would be remiss if I did not mention that Danilo Gallinari had thirty eight points and was ten of eleven from three. And and these were, I mean, he was chucking from like thirty five feet. Yep. Uh, Jared, I, I don't know how Boston defends that in their best day, much less, you know, when they're shorthanded as they as they have been. Oh, there were a lot of like undefendable plays in that one. It was it was just like the Celtics couldn't hit back. And it was, you know, it was like watching uh, Jay King try to fight Floyd Mayweather. I mean, it was it was just an absolute <laughs> pummeling. And 
you know, the funny thing was at uh, right before they started garbage time and the Celtics started garbage time really early in this game. It was like at the seven minute mark or so. The Hawks had an a plus 18 three point made differential, which was too short of the NBA record at the time. The NBA record is 20. So this was a record pummeling and that they were up by like 35 pretty much the entire game. I mean, that that final score was just because like Tremont Waters came in the game and started hitting a bunch of threes when the Hawks didn't even care anymore. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today's show, folks. Uh, thanks for Mike Vorkanoff for popping in and talking Knicks with us. And uh, we're going to be back tomorrow with a whole another episode of The Daily Ding. Don't forget, you can go to theathletic.com slash daily ding. Sign up. If you're not already a subscriber, you'll get this podcast ad free along with all of the great reporting that we talked about on this show. Go read Tony Jones story on the on the jazz. I mean, really like a special season happening right in front of our eyes. We don't get to see stuff like this and realize it in real time. They are on a roll. Go read Tony. Go read Jared over at The Athletic. Subscribe to the pod. Give us a good review. Uh, I don't know. Like us on iTunes. Can you like stuff on iTunes? Just do whatever you can. Subscribe, rate, review. Uh, Till tomorrow, for Andrew, for Jared, I'm Dave. We'll talk to you then.